episode 16, a hopeful hashtag. The good, the bad and the ugly, as many millions of people around the planet know, is the title of a 1967 movie directed by Sergio Leone. Quentin Tarantino describes it as the greatest achievement in the history of cinema. But what does he know about making movies? <laughs> Clint Eastwood is il buono, a good guy. Though in the Italian Wild West that doesn't exclude being a bounty hunter greedy for gold. Lee Van Cleef is il brutto, the bad guy. He takes pleasure in killing. And Eli Wallet draws the short straw as il cattivo, the ugly. Though the moniker refers less to his appearance than his fast-talking, comically oafish, yet also cunning and cagey character. Many more millions of people who have never even seen the film will still recognise and maybe even be able to whistle Ennio Morricone's theme tune with its unforgettable two-note melody, which I can quote for illustration thus. <whistles> Though for copyright reasons, you'll have to go to the Love and Care website to hear the real thing, with the added attraction that you get to see the three main characters slinging guns and bullets around like proverbial confetti. Or is that spaghetti? But alongside the music, the acting and directing, the incredible locations and the even more incredible body count, what's unique about the good, the bad and the ugly is the fact that the movie's title has entered the lexicon as a way of divvying up the world. My favourite source, Wiki, has this to say. The respective phrases refer to upsides, downsides and the parts that could or should have been done better but we're not. With a definition like that, it's just too tempting for me to resist applying those phrases to COVID-19 and the official response to the pandemic, especially here in the UK. So forgive me, I'm taking a day off from our personal story of love and care to talk about the big picture, because the upsides, the downsides, and especially the parts that could or should have been done better, are becoming more apparent with every passing day. But let's draw out those parallels in reverse, partly because the bad and the ugly elements of this disease are painful to hear and need little rehearsal, but mostly because, if we get those out of the way, I can spend time on the good. As I say these words, deaths directly attributable to coronavirus here in the UK have topped 31,000, the highest in Europe and the second highest in the world after America. Everybody with any sense knows that estimate to be low and the real figure to be much higher. But still, 30,000 people with children, parents, partners, friends, colleagues, that means hundreds of thousands of lives touched by tragedy and loss in the course of a couple of months. None of us expected to face this kind of ugliness in our lifetimes. And the shock is frankly terrible. I say none of us, but that's not strictly true. Virologists and epidemiologists, 
Job titles that sounded arcane and foreign just weeks ago knew this would happen. They knew because this kind of pandemic has happened before, many times over, going all the way back to the Spanish flu pandemic that killed up to 50 million people. The last 50 or 60 years have seen many more coronavirus-like outbreaks, just like Spanish flu. Asian flu, for example, in the late 1950s, about 2 million deaths, so-called Hong Kong flu, which only resulted in about a million. SARS and H1N1, which did not kill millions, but were every bit as deadly, if not more so, than COVID-19, and the swine flu outbreak of 2009, that killed up to a half a million people worldwide. So when we say, we didn't see COVID-19 coming, we can't possibly be saying, we've never seen anything like this pandemic before, or that we didn't know it was coming, in fact. A coronavirus outbreak has long topped the risk list for many countries around the world, far ahead of terrorist attacks, asteroids, cyber warfare, clear and present as many of those other risks are. Here in the UK, Operation Cygnus in 2016 wargamed the potential threat of a virus outbreak and showed beyond a shadow of a doubt that the NHS and the economy and the country were simply not prepared to face such a challenge. The gamers and modellers got it right, but nothing was done. PPE, syringes, ICU capacity, testing kits, everything you might need to fight a halfway effective campaign against such a virus was left to lapse, to pass sell-by dates, or simply not purchased and stockpiled because the cost was considered too high and it was hard to see an upside in terms of votes or short-term political advantage. No surprises there. But what is surprising is those same decision-makers refuse to publish the Cygnus scenario even to this day, apparently for fear of frightening us, the public. Hmm. Frightening us indeed. We're living it. President Trump, those two words always sound like an oxymoron, whichever way you cut it, was elected in 2016 and the incoming president's team were invited to play a similar war game to Cygnus with the outgoing Obama staffers and appointees just before taking the reins of power. In a scenario presented to the assembled, they called their theoretical virus H9N2 and projected a situation that, if it were real, would be the worst epidemic since 1918 and cause economic mayhem and massive loss of life. Of the 30 or so people from Trump's team present at the meeting, one fell asleep during the briefing, and two-thirds are no longer part of the US administration. Trump has since made comments such as, You can never really think that a pandemic like the coronavirus is going to happen. Not if you don't listen, and not if you're an oxymoron. We have our own oxymoron here in the UK, Prime Minister Boris Johnson who missed five meetings of the COBRA committee, convened to address existential threats to the nation, as the COVID-19 virus took hold in China, then appeared in our country and started its inexorable spread. Johnson, I don't see why we should call him by his first name, frankly, was still advocating shaking hands, even as his advisers were telling the rest of us to distance ourselves socially. It might be funny if it wasn't so utterly tragic that the country is rudderless, and listing because the captain is all at sea. That's the real ugly. The fact that our leaders have allowed all this to happen despite being warned of the dangers by experts and told the likely outcomes. The government Johnson leads at first flirted with the misguided policy of herd immunity, 
a policy they absolutely knew would kill thousands, and has since been dithering, delaying and obfuscating as it fights a desperate rearguard action to protect itself against charges of gross incompetence and willful mismanagement of the crisis. Everything we do is guided by science. My arse. Then why didn't this government and its predecessors listen to the science that said all this is coming down the line? Prepare. But we should move on to the bad. And having spent more time on the ugly than I intended, I will offer up only one example of the bad from the many I could choose. The daily briefings. The ones Johnson doesn't even see fit to conduct personally, I assume on the advice of Dominic Cummings, the badly dressed Machiavelli behind the wooden panels. On what planet might mealy-mouthed words from second-rate ministers reading from third-rate scripts prepared by fourth-rate sweaty speechwriters in dank basements, cynically attempting to defend the indefensible, be thought to be anything but bad? Where is the respect for us, the people, likely to spook at the Cygnus briefing from 2016, but perfectly capable of living through the reality of lockdown and mass deaths on an industrial scale. There is so much that is dreadful about this crisis, but it is the sheer mediocrity of the players and their plays that absolutely takes my breath away. But enough. I'm done, I promise. That's the ugly and the bad over, and now I want to move on to the good. Because there is good. We could mention the time to stand back, to reflect and to enjoy life, forced upon us by lockdown and slowdown. Or there's those heartwarming signs of the irrepressible human spirit from singing Italians and balcony ravers in Amsterdam to inspired individuals like my own favourite, the Aussie zookeeper and his fan dance. Available on Instagram, I think. Instead of long-haul flights in search of peace and paradise, Many of us have found that a local bicycle ride, time pottering in the garden, can deliver better long-term benefits at a fraction of the cost. Recognising, for example, that homelessness can be, in inverted commas, solved, and that's a big inverted commas, overnight, through the simple expedient of offering hotel rooms, might just empower us to think of other intractable problems as within our grasp, like excess consumption, ameliorated in the blink of an eye by being forced to make do with what's in the cupboard, to be inventive and above all, or so it seems from the shortage of flour on our shelves, by the rediscovery of the lost art of baking. Slow food for slow times. And it's not just the visible changes around us, it's also things conspicuous by their absence. Silly celebrities, for example, now confined to the online world where they can show off and compete and spat with one another away from the general view. Or the stinking rich, suddenly embarrassed when they make a basic mistake like David Geffen, personal wealth estimated at $7.5 billion, who tweeted from his $400 million super yacht sailing the Caribbean, hoping to share a beautiful sunset with the common people. He said, I'm isolated in the Grenadines, avoiding the virus, hoping everyone is staying safe. His tweets are now private, though whether for his sake or for ours is not clear. But we're talking about the good. Cheap shots and cynicism have no place here. So let's turn instead to the new awareness of birdsong, to the sight of goats walking the streets of Landudno in Wales and jellyfish moving through the Grand Canal in Venice 
with greater elegance than tourist gondolas. Dolphins are exploring the stilled waters of the Bosphorus, while boar wander the deserted streets of Haifa in Israel. We might cite the shrinking air pollution footprint hovering over China, or our own skies free of aircraft. It seems we can change our ways, with regard to the planet at least. Hope is a wonderful thing, especially now. But let's not go all squidgy just yet. Because whilst we have tangible evidence that nature can respond by bouncing back with remarkable grace and speed, what we are witnessing is the result of force of circumstance, a symptom of the crisis, an unintended consequence. And if we want the future to be rosy, we're going to need more than happy accidents. I began to wonder what if, just for a moment, we conceive of humanity, not as under threat from a virus, but actually as a virus. I thought it was a neat idea, until a couple of young folk who actually know about such things said, yeah, but that comes straight out of another movie, The Matrix. All right, I'm old, and I'm obviously not original, but let's try extending the metaphor. Right now, if we were a pandemic and not the victims of one, the planet would be breathing a sigh of relief as the threat of the human virus appears to be receding. You don't see it on the streets or in the air, certainly not in Landudno or Venice or Istanbul or Haifa. Maybe, like the dolphins and the goats and the wild boar, it's safe to go out again. Maybe the planet is thinking, hey, perhaps we can afford to ease the lockdown more widely. Maybe the oceans won't have to rise. Maybe extreme weather events and plastic waste and desertification are not inevitable. Only there are lessons for the planet, and for us, from the Spanish flu of 1918. The first wave was mild, and few people died. The second wave, peaking in the autumn of 1918, killed millions and millions of perfectly healthy people, many in less than 24 hours. Maybe... The last 200 years of industrialization, globalization, and rampant capitalism is just the first wave of the human virus. Maybe when we're done with coronavirus, which will happen one day, instead of learning a lesson, we'll have mutated into an altogether more dangerous form, like Spanish flu. But maybe, just maybe, there's a way we can avoid becoming that lethal second wave. How? Well, we start simply by imagining a different world. And that's the real good of this crisis. In giving us a vision of how different things could be, we get a foretaste of an alternative future. Imagine, John Lennon is even now writing a whole new verse in our honour. It's easy if you try. And what do we do then? Even that's not hard. Press reset. On it all, on everything. If things don't have to be as they are, or as they were, then by definition they could be different. That means there is a choice, or many choices, in our own lives, but also in how we live together, and in who governs us, and what priorities and pressures govern them. We can use this time we've been given to reflect on what matters, what's important, what helps us, and indeed what hurts us. Reconceive the world according to that yardstick using straightforward principles like inequality is bad, more equality is good. Like too much is too much and too little is too little of anything and everything. Money, food, property, fame, disease, population, carbon 
I could go on, but I think the principle's clear. Moderation, middle road, enough, sufficient unto our needs, and our needs tempered by the planet's needs, because you can't really have one without the other. What does all this mean in practice? They're fretting right now as I write this about all that money being spent on furloughing workers, but they don't want to talk about the benefits of a basic universal income. They're worrying about the sinking oil price, but not seeing the opportunity to reduce our energy needs altogether. They're frightened globalisation has stalled, and they want it back. Instead of fostering local production and distribution, yes, just like the war, to provide better, cheaper and more sustainable food sources. how to achieve it is not hard. Knowing where to start is not hard. Just press reset yourself and encourage others to do the same. In fact, let's go the whole hog. Let's hashtag reset and let's spread the word because we just need the will to make it happen. Yes, that means fighting vested interest. And yes, above all, it means fighting inequality and greed. But lest we forget, it's Blondie, Clint Eastwood, Il Buono, the good who wins the gunfight with Lee Van Cleef's angel eyes, Il Bruto, the bad, and leaves the ugly Eli Wallach, Il Cattivo, hanging by his neck as he rides away over the horizon with his share of the gold. Love and Care, written, voiced and produced by the author, with Morricone-like music by Leodini, and incidental music by Sir Cubworth. The title track is Wes Hutchinson, and our thanks to him, as always, for making his music available to podcast producers without taking a fee. Find out more about Wes on the website, and don't forget, the good, the bad and the ugly are waiting there for you too. So go in with your eyes open and your six-gun at the ready. Love and Care is a Me Too Mama production. All rights reserved. Mm-hmm.